0: Good morning, everyone, welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here in the studio with guest host Ryan Carbon. And we are having an extraordinary week, extraordinary day in the political world. And uh, just a word from our sponsor. We're sponsored by Beckerman Communications, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story at Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, and we are on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsiegel.com, jmtheam.org, Executive Assistant of Rummy here in the control booth. And Ryan, it's been quite a day. What would you say about the political earthquake going on locally in the tri-state area?
1: Well, you know, I don't think so many people have paid attention to Trenton, New Jersey, in probably decades, but that press conference today, my God, what a bravura performance. Bravura. Bravura by Chris Christie. This guy should get an Oscar, an Emmy. I don't know what else they give out, but that gubernatorial mansion should have statues on every shelf. What a performance.
0: Okay, so I'm going to give you the uh, props to introduce our first guest from this great state of New Jersey, the Garden State. And, uh, well, Ryan, we, go ahead.
1: We have, we have Ben Dworkin uh, joining us, who is the head of the Rebovic Institute for New Jersey Politics at Ryder University. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant mind uh, assessing the uh, crazy politics of the state of New Jersey, which for those who pay attention to it, you know, they actually think it's more interesting than what we do in New York. So, And watching this performance uh, by the governor, New Jersey, as you know, is a very, very strong governor, one of the strongest uh, constitutional governors in the country wielding enormous power, power apparently that stretches from the State House to the George Washington Bridge ramps.
0: Fort Lee, New Jersey. Ben, so, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you, guys. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so let's uh, just start off very quickly.
2: What the uh, hell is going on?
0: Yeah, what's going on over there? <laughs>
2: okay, so we go back and we start with Chris Christie, a very powerful governor, is running for re-election. And in September of this past year, some of the lanes entering the George Washington Bridge from the New Jersey side into Manhattan were shut down. Now, sometimes there's a traffic jam, sometimes there's an accident. These were done. These lane closings were done deliberately. And as you know, the George Washington Bridge is the most... Uh, widely used bridge in the world the busiest bridge in the world these cause these lane closures called tremendous traffic jams forced ems uh emergency workers to virtually double their response times um it made huge delays for kids who were going the first day of school and it lasted for three days why did it stop well as you know New York and New Jersey share control of the Port Authority, which oversees the George Washington Bridge. The decision to close the lanes was made by some of the New Jersey employees. The decision to reopen them was made by some of the New York employees who said, What are you doing, guys? This is crazy. You have to, we didn't inform the town. The mayor has been calling, complaining. Well, we didn't know about this. Ben, Ben, and so th- these are these are. It started a whole
0: investigation.
1: These are senior executives at the Port Authority, high-ranking political appointees.
0: Yeah, these right? are not stupid people absolutely well I, first, I think they are stupid people extremely
2: bright political appointees so, very sharp people topic level executives
0: now they so, may be foolish but they're not stupid they yeah. knew what they were doing it wasn't done in error obviously.
1: Well, which has really, really been my question which is you know I've, I've settled plenty of political scores in my time and, and I plead guilty <laughs> to that in front of uh, you know the millions that are listening to, the, to, to this show
0: I will certainly second that motion were you among them, Michael? I even... uh, we're not going to right, right get into that right now. All right, we're not going to get
1: into that. But never have I heard that we're going to go and screw the mayor of Fort Lee because he didn't endorse us by using a bi-state agency to cause a traffic jam. No one would blame the mayor of Fort Lee for that anyway. It's not under his control. I don't think he's the one who got stuck in the ambulance on the way to his surgery. It wasn't the mayor. It was all these people. So even assuming the most malevolent motives, which turn out to be true, this is a really bizarre way to do a political hit. I don't get it.
2: You're absolutely right. It is bizarre, and that's why today's press conference, despite the bravura uh, performance that you talked about, doesn't really resolve anything because the fundamental question is still unanswered. Who started this? Whose idea was it? Who was involved in the planning of it? You know, there are 1,800 pages of emails and texts that were turned over. To the state legislative committee that is investigating this, yesterday's press coverage was about 22, that's it, 22 pages. So we've got a lot more information that's going to come out, and I think the governor did as best he could, given the fact that apparently even he doesn't know all of the answers.
1: Well, the, the best part, you know, what I thought, you know, that the notion, and I was... Very impressed, in which he theatrically said he was going to go and apologize in person to the mayor of Fort Lee and to the people of Fort Lee. And the mayor said, "You know, thanks, but maybe we shouldn't do that today."
2: Yeah, it, I mean, he originally said it, but the governor was going to show up anyway. And so, when someone is at your door, you let them in. Is, and is so he going to bear for their meeting? I think right now, as we speak, uh, that would be the appropriate thing. I mean, but again, I, it doesn't really resolve anything. In the end, there's still a huge number of unanswered questions.
0: So we're talking to Ben Dworkin, the director of the Rebovic Institute for New Jersey Politics and adjunct assistant professor of political science at Ryder University. And uh Ben, there's like an old adage out there that's kind of the thing that guys like me who go into politics and work for government always know. It's never write down what you can say, never say what you can whisper, Never whisper what you can nod, never nod what you can wink, never wink what you can smile. And uh, what happened here? Why was there this kind of paper trail if you're going to do this kind of thing out there? I mean, it's kind of politics 101. Don't tell, don't leave a trail. It's going to get found out. Look, the surprising
2: things about any scandal are that they happen because in hindsight, they always look dumb. You know, you don't understand why David Petraeus was having these illicit email conversations. You don't understand why really smart people would talk openly uh, and often disparagingly about citizens when they're trying to deal with public services. Um, even if they were using their own private email accounts, maybe that was why they thought they would never be subpoenaed. Um, It is uh, a a shocking, you know, there are better ways to cover this up. Um, I think we have to consider ourselves fortunate because had these emails not existed, no one would know that this extended into
1: the governor's office. You know, I, I, what's interesting to you know, Christy spoke today, you know, kind of a la, reminded me of that scene for Meet the Parents where Robert De Niro talks about uh, the circle of trust and circle being on the trust, inside right. and <laughs> the outside. It's our new catchphrase there. and. Christie spoke about you know his deputy chief of staff had you know he had brought her into the circle of trust and obviously now she's fired. She's clearly um, outside that circle. But you know, really the the kind of language that I heard today, um, circle of trust, saddened and disappointed, his people his people let me down, you know he sounded like he was the victim and i just i i i and and this is a guy who who i really think is a master of the tone of political communication i think overall it was a, it was a great um, press conference but i think once the you know uh you know the political world begins to start picking through some of some of what he said it it mm-hmm. suggests a kind of very clubby administration the guy who took the fifth and i know you worked for uh senator feldman uh, you were a uh, prominent uh Staffer there in the in the New Jersey State Legislature, the guy who took the fifth before the committee today is the governor's top buddy.
2: Well, uh, the governor in his press conference tried to distance himself uh, from Wildstein, the uh, court Authority executive who uh, was asked to testify, was subpoenaed to testify today, and proceeded to then take invoke the Fifth Amendment and chose not to answer any of the questions. The governor in his press conference very much tried to distance him that he was uh, hired at the Port Authority by somebody else, that while they sort of knew each other in high school, they weren't buddies, they were not really in touch. So it's been conveyed one way. The governor has a different way of, of portraying it. Suffice to say, though, yes, this was a top appointee, one of his top two appointees to the Port Authority. And the governor, as with Governor Cuomo, gets to make these top-level appointments. So the fact that he you know, decried uh, what he did uh, and you know, just saw a situation where, um, in this press conference, I think we saw the governor continue to pile on. Uh, these people—they broke my circle of trust. They were all close. It's interesting, you know. Bill Stepien, who was the other person uh, who was asked to leave the organization today, was the governor's campaign manager in both 2009 and 2013. Well, that's in gratitude for you. Level. I mean, this is top top real inner circle. Real level, if the governor was going to be running for uh, president, which I think most of us assume he will, Stephen was going to be right up there in the upper echelon. And I think that is a, uh, the fact that he has been asked to leave uh, is a significant, uh, significant blow to the Christie political organization.
0: So, well, where do we see things going right now? Uh, is Christie now incredibly damaged or too damaged? Uh, several of the big-money donors have actually, including Ken Langone, was quoted this afternoon as uh, still pledging loyalty to him. So is it uh, – uh, how much are we yeah, tarnished right. here, the Christie brand? Or is it just reinforced it, by his blunt, uh, well, his, the, his bluntness in
2: the uh, – well, Let me try and answer it in two ways. The issue itself about the bridge is not going away because there are still significant unanswered questions – there are thousands of pages of emails and text that we have not yet seen. This is going to continue through the governor's inauguration over the next several weeks at least. So in and of itself, the issue isn't going away. On a broader national brand, the Christie Brand scale, no one in 2016 is going to vote on whether lanes were closed to the George Washington Bridge. This is going to be one story as part of a larger narrative about Chris Christie. You know, Democrats have been trying to call the guy a bully for four years, and the fact is he still won with 60% of the vote. No one really cared that he was a bully. In fact, they liked it a lot of the time. But now uh, he's being accused of abusing power. And abusing power is a much different scale of bullying. And I think it will have a much larger impact. The point is, the bridge is only one story. We're going to hear, once this story ends, there's going to be another one, and then another one, all falling in the same vein. Christie is a, a candidate, a politician, who will abuse the power of his office for his own gain. And that is, I think, from his critics' standpoint... That's the narrative that they're going to be pushing. So it's not ending either as an issue or as a larger attack on the Christie brand.
1: So Christie said today in his press conference, people understand that human beings are not perfect and that mistakes are made. And I was thinking, you know, of all the defense lawyers that represented these people that Christie went after is a very aggressive US attorney of all the political rivals that he has gleefully filleted in front of ballrooms filled with people and now he is pleading for understanding of human error. Is that gonna fly, Ben? Well
2: yeah. I think it will uh, I think it will fly because the people who don't like Chris Christie Weren't, and they're not going to be convinced. I don't know it's whether it's really going to change people uh, who like him to now not like him. How does it cha- uh, how there, does it um,
1: change the dynamics? you know you have a legislative session getting underway uh, yeah. in New Jersey yet you have you know big issues. Uh, going on, going on in the state. Christie has been effective in kind of having this non-aggression pact with Cory Booker. He's played footsie with some of the Democratic mayors and with Democratic state legislators, um, shrewdly used his power, uh, you know, to, uh, to build that coalition. How is this gonna change the dynamics of a legislature which, in my opinion, Christie has fairly successfully um, bent to his will over the course of the past few years. Um, you know, even though he might not have been as successful as he wanted in picking up, uh, legislative seats, um, right. they haven't really been able to get a piece of his hide, the Democrats in the state legislature. Is this going to change? Are you going to have the, you know, the Loretta Weinbergs and the Sweeney's and everybody else? Are they going to try to, you know, swoop in on what they think is a, a you know, a, a, a dead, you know, political carcass there? Or, or, or is that, well, is that, yeah. you know, give and take going to continue well, as it has in the past?
2: Yeah, look, you answered it uh, yourself in one of your earlier comments during this interview. New Jersey's governorship is constitutionally the most powerful governorship in the country. You know, New York, as an example, you elect several uh, officials statewide. Lots of people create statewide political organizations to run. Um, you don't have that here in New Jersey. Only the governor, in terms of people who work in Trenton, we don't elect an attorney general. We don't elect an insurance commissioner. We don't elect a controller, There's nobody else, just the governor. So it's a tremendously powerful position, even if his approval rating goes down. He's still the governor. And so this is not about picking the bones out of carcass. That having been said, second-term uh, governors who are term-limited in New Jersey, are uh, second terms are always tough uh, because you're laying duck. They are always, uh, you always find the legislature that is a little more active in terms of standing up to against the governor. So this was always going to be a tough term. It doesn't help the fact that the state is pretty much not got, uh, you know, doesn't have enough money to keep uh, everything it wants to do going, so there could be no major new initiative um, because of the financial situation. I think... You will see an ongoing investigation that is going to loom over virtually everything. The governor is still going to be powerful, but he's going to be hamstrung in a lot of different ways.
0: This is Spin Class. I'm Michael Fragan with your guest host Ryan Carbon here. and We're talking to Ben Dworkin, the director of the Rebovic Institute for New Jersey Politics. And just to get a little wonkish on you. Uh, sure. since you are a professor, of course, and I think it makes sense to do that. What does this say about the Port Authority as a New Yorker? You know, we have a stake in the Port Authority as well. The Port Authority is yeah. always kind of viewed as this, uh, huge, just unaccountable entity. And how much does this reinforce that perception? And also, how much does this reinforce the New Jersey, New York dysfunction? Because it was spoken about. today as well, and it's kind of been a theme out there, the different, the uh, constant pull and push between the two sides, New Jersey and New York.
2: The the Port Authority does some incredible things, and both states rely on it in large part because they are able to generate, the Port Authority itself can generate its own revenues from fees and tolls, and therefore becomes a... By state kitty bank uh, that you can tap into to create economic development funds. Nobody wants to see it go away. Everybody likes that you can get billions of dollars for different projects, either in New York or New Jersey, um, or and sometimes things like bridges that tap into both and tunnels that tap into both sides. So, oh, are you still there? Sure, we can hear you. Okay. Sorry, I just want to make sure. The um, So I think is that the other thing we just have to recognize is that the Port Authority is a tremendous haven for political appointees. If you need a job for somebody, you can get them a job in the Port Authority, and both states use it that way. There are lots of high-qualified, dedicated uh, professionals who are there, and there are political appointees who come and go, depending on who's governor in one state or the other. All that having been said, I think what is important is to moving forward for the Port Authority is will there be a congressional investigation? Because that's the kind of thing that could really expose a lot of this stuff. Why do we pay such high tolls on these bridges? What can be changed? Is it part of the culture there? That kind of congressional investigation, which may or may not come, is the thing that could expose it.
0: Right now, everybody
2: kind of likes it. Sure, there's tension, but that happens all the time.
0: What about the U.S. attorney investigation that was just announced today?
2: Well, they didn't announce an investigation. They announced that they're considering an investigation. They're doing a preliminary examination to see if it's worthy to go forward. Um, So we'll have to see, get that a little time. Um, Sure, that can be uh, part of it, but they'll be looking for crime. They'll be looking for acts, you know, criminal acts. Did anything here cross past the stupidity line into an actual criminal act? The only Congress can really start investigating how many people work there. What do these people do? What kind of audit do you have? And honestly, I'm not sure whether either New York or New Jersey really wants all that exposed, Because they get a lot out of the Port Authority, each side.
1: Well, you know, that's interesting, Ben, because, you know, uh, and and we're going to move to our discussion with our next guest shortly on on Governor Cuomo's state of the state. But one of the little nuggets in the speech yesterday up in Albany was Cuomo took a shot at the Port Authority. He said, I am going to take control of the rebuilding of LaGuardia. JFK, the Port Authority has not done this well. I'm gonna take control just like I took control of the Zee Bridge project, and I'm gonna go and, and get it done. And that to me was an interesting kind of, of counterpoint to this discussion on what's going on in the bridge. So if Cuomo's gonna make a move, and nothing's higher profile, you know, to a region when you talk about, about its airports, you know, that, that's, Mm -hmm. that's sexy stuff politically and infrastructure wise. I think that the spotlight on the Port Authority, because of that that Cuomo's doing for his agenda, because of this politics, and because there is nothing more exciting, I think, for reporters and state legislators and anybody who has the ability to get their hands on arcane government documents – I think that the Port Authority is going to be under a a very, very bright light, under a microscope. And I think that the the Port Authority, how it runs, what its its future looks like, I think that is going to be a very, very hot topic in governmental circles over the course of the next year.
2: You're absolutely right. It, It may well be. The question is, if only one side wants to expose, only one side wants to reform, and the other side is dragging its feet, it'll be hard to do something. And that's why it's really up to Congress to come in and to uh, perhaps, you know, throw some disinfectant, open the windows, try and figure out all of these things uh, that are going on there. They do a lot of very good work. Um, it's a question of is it being run efficiently. And I think that's something, if you really want to get to a point where things can be reformed, you need a lot of buy-in from both sides.
1: It, where where's Cory Booker on this? Has he said anything? He's I an ally of Christie. Uh, said
2: any uh, particular comments by him at, at, at this point?
1: I, I presume that that silence is probably going to have to end fairly quickly, though. I think everybody's going to have to, you know, be asked for their opinion and say something. and It'll be interesting to see uh, how the major players in the state position themselves.
0: Okay, Ben Dworkin, it, the I, from Ryder University and the director of the Republican Institute for New York New Jersey Politics. I apologize, giving us the. Uh, real insight into politics as blood sport in the garden State. Ben, thank you very much for joining us uh, on short notice. Very, very much appreciated. Hope to have you again very, very soon. Thank you guys. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Right. Thanks Ben.
0: Thank you and Bye. this is Spin class and we are going to transition across the Hudson from New Jersey back to New York where uh, yesterday Governor Cuomo delivered his 2014 state of the state address and uh did so in a tone that really had something for everyone, although not everything for everyone. Mentioned some things that you would have expected and some things that were were unexpected, but there were a lot of political theater there, and uh, certainly it's going to be an interesting year. This is the re-election year for Governor Cuomo. So uh to explain it all to us, to our audience, we have the experts and an expert opinion from Liz Benjamin, who is the host of <laughs> Capital Tonight in Albany on the YNN. And uh, you can catch that uh, as well on the State of Politics blog. And uh, also, uh, as still in the studio, our guest host, Ryan Carbon. Liz, welcome back to Spin Class.
3: Hi, nice to talk to you. And hi, Ryan. I haven't spoken to you in a lo- uh, spoken to you in a long time. So we don't. If, if we... Well,
1: I want to. I want to give a ver- Liz a very hearty Mazel Tov. I want to uh, take oh, a point of personal you. privilege. I, I I have not had the chance to offer my congratulations on the nuptials of the Iron Woman there. And I want to <laughs> throw that out there and, and wish you and, and your spouse many years of happiness.
0: See, oh, see what you. one That's has to nice. do in order to get a word in. It's uh, really really amazing. So, Liz, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't want. I don't want to. Let uh, Governor Christie overshadow his partner at the by state Port Authority agency. Uh, right. Let's, Governor Cuomo, I think today is battling for a little bit of political spotlight as as he you know does. He definitely is a, a battler for that political spotlight. How is Governor Cuomo looking going into an election year, and not specifically with regard to the war chest? More specifically, going into you know kind of keeping his promises for the first term.
3: Mm, he's looking. Fairly strong. I mean, there were some carryovers uh, from uh, 2013 into the State of the State address 2014. Um, some of them are politically beneficial to him. One might argue that the women's uh, equality agenda, as it's known, or the Women's Equality Act, which is a 10-point act that includes a controversial abortion plank, um, is it could serve the governor to whip up the women vote. Which uh, served uh, President Obama quite well in the last election. Remember the war on women, right? Really motivated the grassroots base. So that didn't work. It was a, a real high point of the 2013 State of the State. Uh, the because of the abortion plank thwarted by the Senate Republicans never even made it to the floor. <clears throat> Pardon me. That's back in this State of the State, although somewhat more muted. Uh, ethics reform, um, sort of pushed by the governor in the wake of a uh, yet another wave of public corruption scandals in the legislature. That uh, also did not work. Uh, The legislature refused to pass it last year, and that's how the Moreland Commission was born, the anti-corruption Moreland Commission created by the governor to investigate the legislature. Uh, So that's back also. And um, a a slew of new... um, Proposals, of course, the uh, ones that are particularly interesting in New York City have to do with uh, the takeover of construction at JFK and LaGuardia, which is, you know, does dovetail quite nicely into the Port Authority story there. So uh, that's an interesting one. And then a $2 billion Education Bond Act also took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, there were leaks before the state, two point two, state of the state rather, $2.2 billion tax cut package the governor outlined, um, and we know quite a bit about that. Uh, Also, a medical marijuana proposal. Um, New York would be, I believe, the 21st state uh, to make that move, although in a very limited fashion under the governor's plan, the legislature. No Colorado uh, here. No, no Colorado, not um, recreational marijuana. That's not what this is about. The governor says that's a non-starter. There There is a bill to do that in the Senate. It's carried by Liz Krueger, a Manhattan Democrat, uh, quite liberal. But this uh, this is not that we should just say. Uh, so there's a lot in there, and he heads in, I think, like you said, Michael, um, with something for everyone. And uh, however, let's all remember that the uh, State of the State is a broad brush speech, and uh, the details um, and are going to be in the state budget. And there's still a lot of questions about how he intends to pay for all of what he has proposed. And and we will see. Yeah,
1: you know, I want to ask you a question, Liz. It's Ryan. I'm looking at the political dynamics. Obviously, a huge win. Big political story: De Blasio, Mark Viverito, this resurgent left in New York City, feeling I very. I think
0: we say progressive, not left. I think that's the appropriate way. Is
1: to say. that the? Or my? I, yeah. I, sta- well, I stand corrected. I mean,
3: well, you could quibble with that, but go ahead. Okay, all right. Okay, so okay, we sorry. we
1: have we have the the progressive resurgence. Uh, you know, at the same time that happened in New York City, in all the suburban counties: Rockland, Orange, Westchester, Nassau. Strong victories, um, by Republicans, suburban yep. voters sticking with the GOP and that ex- obviously exerting a, a pull to the right on the Senate in the same way that I see de Blasio, you know, exerting a pull to the left on the, on the assembly. And now we have Governor Cuomo, you know, really as, as a man in the middle there. So how do his political interests um, come into play with an assembly that needs to go tack to the left to make its new mayor happy, with a Senate that needs to please their the sole remaining Republican infrastructure, which is the Republican county executives. Um, what 's Cuomo going to do to be able to secure victories in the middle of what seems to be irreconcilable differences between those two mm. houses?
3: Well, he's going to horse trade, as, as you know, is sort of, and you'll remember this, Ryan, as is the time-honored tradition. Right, I have no recollection of that. Of course you don't. <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, everybody needs something. It's an election year, not just for the governor, but also for all 213 state lawmakers, those who are going to be seeking election. We have nine vacancies and counting at the moment in the legislature, most, most of those uh, seven, I believe, in the Assembly. But nevertheless, the bulk of them will be seeking re-election, and they have needs, too. They... They need to go home and run and campaign, and of course they want to look good doing it. And if the governor continues to paint the legislature as you know uh, morally corrupt and in need of an overhaul, then I think that that's going to be problematic. How much juice uh, he intends to put behind that uh, remains to be seen. So they'll trade. I mean that that's what they always do, and uh, you know the governor will give a little and get a little, and so will the legislature because that's the way it's done. He is, of course, towing the sort of middle line, which is not in keeping with the narrative, arguably, of the rise of the left or progressives, as, as Michael has said. Um, you know, And it's not just de Blasio, but it's also Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator, who we learned today is headed to New York, New York City to be exact, later this month to attend a rally or an event in favor of public campaign finance reform, which is something that the governor has given lip service to, uh, since he was a candidate in 2010, but has never put any political muscle behind. And so it's unclear what he's going to do to mollify the left, but he is continuing this pattern that he has created for himself of fiscal conservatism and social liberalism.
1: I, I think that the, the, you know, the, the, the universal pre K stuff, as well as the medical marijuana, seem to be one of those situations where the governor, uh, of whom I am an unabashed fan, had a negotiation with himself came to a conclusion about how, he, how the state was going to deal with the UPK and the de Blasio tax, came to a conclusion of how to deal with the marijuana, to kind of take those issues off the table so that they wouldn't really be featured in the legislative give-and-take. That's what it looked like to me.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was the Bond Act was a pretty brilliant stroke because, of course, a Bond Act, as, as you both know, is something that needs to be approved both by the legislature and also by the voters. And so the governor gets to campaign on education, which is sort of like mom and apple pie, assuming that the Bond Act is sharing space on the ballot with him in this fall's election. Um, He gets a piece of the pre-K argument, certainly. He has put money behind pre-K competitive grants um, up until this point, which means that districts have to uh, really go up against one another, like the Hunger Games of pre-kindergarten, if you will. And, And they have been giving out increased Um, numbers of those grants, although not all districts are applying for them because, to to be honest, the applications are, you know, they have other things that they need to take care of. So he does, uh, he hasn't said how he's going to pay for it yet. It's unclear if it would be a true victory, one that uh, Bill de Blasio would accept, if the funding is not through a tax on wealthy residents of New York City. He says he wants a recurring revenue stream. He says he wants it to fund his entire five-year plan, this being the new mayor of New York City. Uh, Cuomo says he wants to cut taxes and not raise them. He's been saying that for months now, and he believes that that is the key to reviving the economy, particularly in the beleaguered upstate version, uh, portion rather, of the state. So where they both seem to be uh,
0: where he's headed to zero tax, zero well, corporate tax, corporate right? corporate
3: franchise tax, right? But but they're they so they both seem to have sort of painted themselves into a box uh, on their respective positions, and I don't necessarily see the way clear for them to both declare victory but look it's a year in which they both need something they both need uh wins bill de blasio has to now negotiate a whole slew of union contracts and he has um, you know perhaps not the money to do so or at least not all the money uh, for retroactive raises that i think uh the unions are hoping for though there may be some understanding of that among the labor community we'll see There are other things he needs to deal with. He can't just be dealing with a protracted battle all year long with Albany over pre-kindergarten. And the governor needs to run for re-election. And perhaps there's some way that they can uh, uh, agree to do a deal that makes them both look good. I don't know what that is, but maybe they can do it.
0: This is Spin Class, and we're talking to Liz Benjamin, the host extraordinaire of Capital Tonight, as well as New York State of Politics blog, which uh, all the, everybody in the audience should be following if you're interested in anything going on in Albany and politics around the state. And since it is an election year, Liz, uh, there are two open seats in the state Senate uh, yeah. right now. The governor has indicated, or at least uh, the whispers are, that there will not be a special election. Additionally, you have two Republicans – well, you, I'm sorry, you have one Republican senator who has already declared that he's running for Congress – and potentially, there's another Republican senator on Long Island who might be running for an open seat in Nassau County,
3: uh, right. that
0: being Jack Martins, who uh, is, has run once already for the Carolyn McCarthy seat. So- well, he said
3: today, he told Newsday today that he's probably going to stay in the state Senate, but he hasn't ruled out the possibility that he would run for the McCarthy seat. And, of course, Carolyn McCarthy uh, announcing just this week that she won't seek reelection. Uh, due to her health, which of course is, is very unfortunate. She's
0: yes, not, absolutely. She's- and she, being my congresswoman, I will say, uh, really, my thoughts and prayers go out to her. She really is a a, a, a heroic woman. Uh, we certainly, you know, don't see eye to eye on on necessarily on everything. Uh, but I will tell you, she certainly is a heroic woman, and I I really admire her uh, for have, for so many years. But so, uh, but where but where does that leave the Senate? Uh, you have know, two members shy right now. And always uh, kind of a seesaw as far as uh, control is concerned, but uh, but you also have this dynamic of uh, one or maybe perhaps two and uh, yeah. running running for Congress and potentially going and you know that you know running into an election year, so that that creates its own dynamics as far as uh, as far as the balance of power.
3: Right. So, okay. there's a lot of things going on here. First of all, it could be more than two. I mean, Bill de Blasio is not done filling his cabinet and his administration yet. So maybe he'll reach into the Senate and pull someone out, although the downstate seats, generally speaking, are pretty safe in the Democratic column. So we'll assume. But the New York York City ones
0: in particular. Say that again. I said the New York City ones in particular.
3: Well, right, right. I mean, unless you know, not not necessarily all of them, but most of them, right? I, so, I
0: assume Bill De Blasio is not going to point George Latimer to. Uh, to no, to a or
3: or, or or Andrew Lanza, or probably not Marty Golden, right? Oh, you so were thinking uh, the
0: Republican side, but he, Bill De Blasio has already said he's not going to appoint Republicans, so I think Mark okay with that.
3: that. He did.
2: I think Marty would say yes. You've got
3: two senators who are, uh, um, you know, accused of uh, corruption. You've got John Sampson, a Brooklyn senator, the former majority leader who charged with embezzlement, and, and, uh, uh, former majority leader also, um, Malcolm Smith from Queens. Uh, charged with public corruption in that scheme to sell the GOP ballot line in the New York City mayor's race. So we don't know how those are going to come out. If you are accused and found guilty, you can sit while you're accused and, and on trial because we see that uh, Eric Stevenson uh, the, in the Assembly is doing so. But you, if you're found guilty of the felony, you have, to, you have to resign.
0: Let's not forget William Boyland. Who has let's
3: not forget William Boyland. Indeed. I mean, who could forget William Boyland? He certainly seems to be the king
0: as far as sitting while uh, while on trial.
3: Or something. So, so, I, I, so we don't know, right, what the governor will do. He seems loath to call special elections, but to leave some one million people unrepresented for a year is something that I think the good government groups have a problem with, if not, if not the residents of those particular districts, even if they notice that is, that they are going unrepresented in Albany. I'm not sure that they have. But they might over the, over the course of the year, particularly when there's nobody to represent their interests to vote on the budget, for example.
1: So Liz, Um, can I, can I ask you about that relationship between the governor and the legislature? Because what struck me yesterday as I was sitting there in the convention center and the pictures of Sheldon Silver and Dean Skellos went up on those milk cartons because they were missing an action during the governor's uh, Adirondack challenge and, you know, I'll tell you what came to mind for me was the old days of the state of the state, which was delivered in the chamber of the state assembly, packed to the gills with senators on folding chairs, lobbyists, family members, everybody, in a room under the control of the speaker, clearly in the legislature. And we know when the governor came in, he shifted that. He says, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to do it in the convention center. And I was thinking yesterday, as you know, you could not post on a big board a picture of the speaker and no. the majority leader if you were in the, if you were in the Capitol in the chamber. To what extent has the governor kind of seized more control of that state government, that state of the state, which was so st- managed? And we know the governor is a, is an excellent political stage manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what struck me yesterday is here we are for the fourth year. Everybody was joking about, you know, the governor likes to keep the room cold. How cold is it going to be? <laughs> Clearly, the governor was in charge of that room. It was his room. It was his message. It wasn't where he was had the Speaker of the Assembly uh, gavel it in and the Lieutenant Governor presiding and the Comptroller and the Attorney General sitting behind him. They were all off to the side. The spotlight was on the governor, his room, his convention center, his show. Yeah. Um, what how, has that changed the nature of the relationship with the governor and the legislature, both in terms of style and substance?
3: Well, that is just one of a whole slew of things that have changed the nature between the legislature and the governor. I mean, remember, we went through a series of governors very quickly, and the state was very unstable when, uh, when Governor Cuomo took over, and he came in very strong. We have, by design, by the Constitution in this state, a very strong executive. And whoever wields that power, and you've noted uh, the strength of, of the governor, this particular governor, as a political tactician, really can make uh, a, a significant dent in um, you know, in the power vacuum in Albany. And this governor certainly has done so. Plus, you have, as I mentioned earlier, the Moreland Commission, which is investigating the legislature. And the governor has made it clear that that's why it exists, although initially he said it could follow uh, the money trail wherever it led. Subsequently, it's clear that it really... Um, the governor does believe that the corruption problem does not lie in his administration or in any executive agency, but rather in the legislature, which is not entirely true. Of course, there have been corruption issues and arrests and in, in various different agencies, and we did see a governor wrapped in a prostitution scandal uh, be forced to resign. So it's not like the executives have been immune to uh, problems however no, no, none of
1: Cuomo's top people I mean he's he's, no, he's no, had a pretty not, none, clean of, ship. The, none
3: of, the, well, of the Cuomo's top people in the cabinet but but the relationship between the executive and legislative branches is fairly you know um frosty as a result of the Moreland Commission I think everybody was hoping that it would wrap up rather quickly the problem is that they've been trying to negotiate an ethics package and nobody is willing to budge
0: well in that vein Liz let me just ask what lessons does Cuomo learn from his counterpart, uh, Chris Christie, from today? Oh, another strong, dominating personality who tries to dominate the, uh, all, all the political figures around him. What is he learning? Is he at all potentially chastened by what Chris Christie is going through?
3: He learns not to put too much in writing uh but you would think you would think that they had that. learned that thanks to Elliot Spitzer back in the day and and the whole Wall Street investigations I, I mean the idea that you would put anything uh well whatever the 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 Cuomo administration uses this um pin to pin you know device to device communication that's been reported Blackberry to pin. avoid just this sort of problem, I think I don't think that this has any impact on him at all, other than to say that you know if in fact he was to run in two thousand and sixteen because Hillary Clinton does not or that she does run and then tanks for some reason and he enters as a late uh, candidate on the democratic side, then you know um this is good news for people who may or may not have to you know face chris Christie. It's a long time, however, you know, two years is a long time, assuming Christie can somehow get out of this mess perhaps by that time something else and bigger will have happened to someone else and will have moved on
0: yeah, does he have a meeting with all his senior staff and say uh, hey guys uh, you know none of this
3: they had that I meeting don't... I think they had that meeting four years
0: ago they had that. okay yeah,
3: not to my knowledge but I I think that they are very careful and and the governor is this governor governor Cuomo is not one um, who is prone to mistakes of this nature this is a, a significant sort of political one oh one mistake that 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 any uh you know very rookie sort of mistake. operative would not make. Yeah I think make. we
0: we did mention that in our first segment with uh with regard to New Jersey. In my mind this is just unbelievable that Number one that it could happen because it just it's so politically stupid. Number two that the people thought that it wouldn't be found out, particularly if they put everything in email. Really, just incredible. Well, well,
1: and the other issue, Michael, is as we said we said before. And Liz, I'd love to hear what you think about this. You know, as political retribution goes, I don't know how punishing a mayor by having your unrelated by state agency shut down a. Bridge lane, and somehow that's some kind of political price. I mean, maybe the folks in somehow the Cuomo people... administration in New York need to explain to New Jersey exactly how you get back at people politically. Right. I think closing down bridge lanes is probably a little bit harebrained. Were
0: the people cur- you're sitting in traffic really cursing Barbara Buono or something? I, that just—it's just amazing. No, they
3: were upset that they couldn't get from point A to point B fast enough. I don't think they were blaming anybody except for the car in front of them and you know, and the car in front of that. Nobody, I think, would have even dreamed that this was part of some political retribution sch- uh, scheme, and and that's just, you know, it's it's sandbox politics. Wow. Really. And
0: how good does Pat Foy look right now?
3: Uh, very good, indeed. Very good. <laughs>
0: Full disclosure: I replaced Pat Foy on the Lipa board. I've always been a huge fan of Pat Foy, a
1: no-nonsense guy,
0: unbelievable, bipartisan, yes. has served Democrats, Republicans, and served them very ably. A really fantastic pick to head the Port Authority. But I actually who want... has
1: much more clout today than he did yesterday. But
0: Pat Foy,
3: interestingly enough,
0: I uh, quit the Mangano administration a couple years ago. If you would do remember that, and uh, I do
3: remember that. Yep.
0: So, uh, did anybody ever find out what the story was there?
3: uh not in my wheelhouse on that one. Not I've got new. enough to worry about here in Albany.
0: Okay, well it had some Albany uh, Well, it's good to know it's yeah. good to know there's
1: a limit to to the tentacles there though.
0: E- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Liz Benjamin, <laughs> the host of Capital tonight up in Albany as well as blogger of New York State of Politics and you can catch her on her Twitter handle which is
3: uh it's uh, @ctlizby
0: At Okay, at CT, Liz B. B. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Liz. We hope to have you again very, very soon, and thanks for enlightening the audience out there.
3: Happy New Year. Bye-bye, and to you. And mazel tov again.
0: This is Spin Class, and we are talking politics. It's Michael Fragan here in the studio with Ryan Carbon. We are sponsored by Beckerman Communications, Beckerman Public Affairs, beckermanpr.com, and we are very happy to host once again New York City Councilman Donovan Richards, representing the southeast portion of Queens, including the Rockaways. Don't forget about the Rockaways. Donovan, thank you very much for joining us here again on Spin Class.
4: Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm, I love when I get a call of you on this show.
0: Fantastic. So, Donovan, you had a big day yesterday. While some of us were up in Albany listening to the plans for the future of the state of New York, you were involved in some significant political history in electing the first Latina mayor uh sorry, city council speaker. Uh well, I I you know, that was that was know, that's gonna that was, come as news wow, to build up that, that, that happened fast. The first Latina city council speaker, Melissa Mark Viverito, and I wanna point out just you know as a first question, Donovan, uh you are a Queen's Council member. But you yeah. initially were supporting Melissa Viverito, even though your county chairman was pushing for the other guy so uh so tell us tell us a little bit about you know how you, this is your first full term and uh you know what were the what was the going on around this uh, election and uh I think you fared well but uh let's you know let's talk about it, unpack it for the audience a little bit about uh okay. electing a new speaker.
4: Well, one of the things that, you know, you have to judge a person by, and, and this is the criteria I sort of use whenever I'm going to, uh, back someone. And let me just point out, Dan Gorodnik is, uh, has been phenomenal, uh, through this entire process. He, he's a friend. He's someone who was here for me as well as Melissa, uh, when I was running in my special election. And he's been, uh, you know, he, he's been a stand-up guy, classy guy, and just very thankful for him, uniting the body yesterday. Um, but, you know, when when I look to endorse someone, I'm looking at, one, what's good for the city? And, two, what's good for my community? And, three, well, actually, the first one is, can they win, actually? Then the second That's is, what is criteria. good for the city? And then, what is good for my community? Um, and, based on all three of those criterias, um, I went with Melissa Early. And, um, you know, she's a person I've got to know Over the, over the last few months, I've sort of bumped in, uh, bumped into her her, while I was a staffer, obviously, in the city council for 10 years. But she's been on the front line for such a long period on all the issues that are important to me and myself and to the community and to the city at large. So it wasn't a hard decision to make. Now you would say, why would you split with, you know, obviously your, your, uh, Queens, uh, county who, who, you know, who I think are upstanding people. These are people I work with. But one of the things I'm taught is you always be there for people who are there for you. And, um, you know, when I was running my first time through a very rough election, um, Melissa and company and in, in the caucus, those people were there for me. And I'm a loyal person. And if you go to bat for me, you can bet that I'm going to go to bat for you. So, you know, based on those criteria, it wasn't a really a hard choice. Yeah, no question.
1: So I want to I jump in on that. So, so this is Ryan Carbin. How are you? Congratulations, Councilman. having haven't hey, had the chance you. to congratulate you since you won that, that race there.
0: He's won, he's won twice since then. Twice he, he, since then. He won then. Yeah, the special and now his regular election this year.
1: You know, there was a colleague of mine said that your life in politics—it's not measured in years; it's measured in primaries and elections and all that other kind of stuff. It's kind of like the rings on a tree. Cut a guy open, you see how many elections he's run, and you know what he's worth. Um, Do you think that the Mark Viverito win was about the kind of personal loyalty that you've described, um, or was it ideological? Because a lot of folks are saying this is some kind of huge ideological win. It's about what she stands for. It's about um, de Blasio's agenda. And there are others that say, you know what, it's a legislative body. Legislative bodies are, for better or for worse, people in the same position. They're clubs. Um, People just have an affinity for another personal loyalty take the case. So was this about ideas slash ideology, or was it about the personal comfort of the members with uh, Melissa Mark-Liverito, or was it a combination of both?
4: It was a combination of all of the things you described. Now, you know, there's always these reports out there like she's just mean and evil lady, but I, you know, I'm one. I judge a person based on my experience, and how do they treat you before you're in power is most important. And before I even was a council member, Melissa was always called in and, and very nice and, and very, like I said, big on the issues. Now, there are going to be some things, obviously, that come up that we're not going to totally agree with Melissa, uh, Speaker Piverito on, neither the mayor. And, you know, you, there's this notion out there that if you're with the progressives, you're, you're in, in the council, we're just going to rubber stamp everything. And I think the speaker made that very clear yesterday. I'm definitely an independent voice in the council. Um, you know, I, I would rather not do things out in the open confrontation or really work but to resolve them. You know, you know, you know, without taking it to to, to the public unless I had to. Um, but you know, these are all of the things that are going to help this body to move forward. Now, we do want a good relationship with the mayor. I mean, all of us, uh, you know, his agenda was addressing poverty, is addressing a lot of these subsidies that that companies are getting and not paying their workers well. It was it, these are the issues that affect communities in the Rockaways, the Southeast Queens high foreclosures in Southeast Queens, union workers in Southeast Queens, you know, majority. So, you know, we want to make sure that, yes, while we align on some issues, there are going to be some issues we don't necessarily agree with the mayor on. And when that time comes, you know, we will let the mayor know. And I think one, one item or three items the, the speaker spoke about yesterday was certainly member items, making sure we don't get rid of those. Uh, I believe that those member items are a big help to our community, to communities of colors, um, and 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 vice versa. Just all communities who are in need, whether it's Jewish community, I fund groups there. You know, everyone has a need, and these groups wouldn't be coming to us obviously if they didn't have a need. Absolutely, um, we're talking
0: to Councilman and, and, Donovan sorry, Richards. I apologize. Just want to make sure you're properly the audience. If you're tuning in right now, uh, knows exactly who you are, Councilman Donovan Richards from Southeast Queens. Continue,
4: Councilman. And the Rockaways, don't forget that. Yeah, know Rockaways, that's Southeast Queens, but for some reason, she doesn't count as Southeast Queens sometimes.
0: Well, that's a good segue. Um, I have a (laughs) Rockaway-specific question for you. Say that again? I have a Rockaway-specific question for you. Oh, let's go. Bring it on. Okay, one thing that people found interesting about this race was your colleague on the Rockaways, a Republican, Councilman Eric Ulrich, (laughs) uh, was one of the early people with Melissa Mark Fiverito, and he took a Mm -hmm. lot of heat for that. Uh, in his constituency, or I shouldn't say a lot of heat, but it was certainly chronicled out there uh, from mm-hmm. from quite a few of his constituents. Now, was that a universal Rockaway uh, decision by the two of you? Was there a collaboration on that? You know, or- we
4: were speaking about it um, when I finally had made my decision. You know, I spoke to Eric, and he wasn't totally there as of yet. You know, he certainly has a different ideology along some lines. But at the same time, when you look at When you have the mayor saying, this is the person that I believe is going to do a good job for the city of New York and someone I can work with, you want to have a relationship with the mayor. You want to have a relationship with the speaker. What Eric did was paramount. What he said is that, you know what, I'm going to put myself, you know, I'm going to take myself and my own political aspirations out of the equation right now, and I'm going to vote according to what my constituency is going to need. And that was a very brave move, very courageous, and I will stand up to bat for him at any time because, uh, you know, he was an important piece of the pie um, here. And, uh, you know, he did what was best for his community. Now, quite naturally, he could have voted with his delegation and probably heard nothing, but it's good that he, he foreseen, and that's, and that's the job of leaders. Our job is to be visionaries. And to, and to really see when you see a thing is going a certain way, you know, most people want to be on the winning team, you know, um, because that benefits, obviously, your community and your relationship, obviously, with the mayor as well. So, you know, what he did was good for his community and his community will see that, you know, they they will see that, see that. they're going to reap huge benefits um, for him standing up for his community.
1: I want to talk a little bit about ghosts of speakers past. We just had a... Chris Quinn, Christine Quinn, really go down in in uh, flames uh, in in her campaign, um, and a huge narrative coming out, which uh, frankly I thought was really uh, you know a little bit obnoxious and and, and sexist and kind of uh, probably a little bit uh, you know uh, anti lesbian also. But putting all that uh, on the side, to what extent does the um, the, the Political fortunes of, of Chris Quinn and her her uh, exit from city politics, how does that shadow what the new speaker is going to have to do? also, somebody who has a reputation as a focused um, uh, woman and, and, and women in politics there, there are different rules mm-hmm. than for men in politics anybody doesn 't admit that hasn 't spent any time mm-hmm. with any hasn 't spent any time with any women and hasn 't spent any time in politics so mm-hmm. um, to what extent does the Quinn legacy uh, hang over? Uh, the new speaker.
4: How do you think that's going to shape
1: her tenure, you know, if I, at
4: all? I think the media is going to continue to portray it that way, and and you know it's it, you know our job is not is to certainly deal with the media and work with the media, and they're going to have their interpretation of things, and you know that's that's their right, it's, you know that's why we have you know freedom of speech, um, but at the same time, I know Melissa Mark Viverito, and she's not one who's going to bite her tongue if she does not agree, you know, with, with someone, she's going to stand up. And she's done that, um, as long as I have known her and, and seen her in action. She's always been that way. She's made it very clear once again that we're not banning member items. She's against the five borough taxi plan. Um, you know, and, and, and the soda ban so far. So those are stances that the mayor you know, he has his stance on. She's already taken a position that she's we're gonna you know, we're going to do it respectfully, but we're not going to be on the same side of the aisle here. Um, and there are going to be other issues that come up as well. But, but let me take it away from her as well. The members, you see, one of the things that, that in it was a part of her, her platform was the members, it, the city council is going to be much more inclusive. So there are certain things that are going to come up that I've already let her know that I have an issue with. And she hasn't said, you know what? This is the end of you. We can't have this debate. It's going this way. So and so. These are things that have, that we've spoken about already that have not even come up on the floor yet. Um, but I believe that she's going to be a strong independent voice. And if anyone believes other, they're going to be shown wrong. And, and, and like you said, woman in, in politics is a very hard, uh, uh, thing to do, you know, because women are supposed to, you know, play this role of quiet, and be, you know, they're supposed to be more affectionate, or I don't know what, what people have' in their mind, but Melissa is a strong force to be reckoned with, and, and, and anyone, like I said, who thinks otherwise is going to find out differently.
0: Councilman Donovan Richards, representing Southeast Queens and the Rockaways, made history yesterday by helping to elect Melissa Marfa Verito, the first Latina speaker. Uh, the city. I got yes. it right this time. Good enough, and uh, I actually was up in Albany and saw the mayor up there and uh, gave him congratulations. Like, he was in, that in a done.
1: very good mood yesterday.
4: Very good. Very oh yes, very yes. And Bill is, he's a good, has been a good friend to all of us. So it is, it's really an exciting moment in the city, and I, I, I'm ready to get to work. And I was appointed to the rules committee yesterday by the speaker. Congratulations. Um, so That's we'll a, be going. Thank you. So we'll be going through. You know, some things early and starting to. Figure out the committee assignments pretty soon and everything like that because we're ready to get to work. So
0: fantastic, Uh, Councilman! Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, and we'll have you again for we'll check in with you uh, pretty soon. I imagine hear what's going on in the City Council.
4: Anytime, my phone is always spinning for you.
0: (laughs) Fantastic! There There we go. Okay, this is Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman. And uh, closing thought: as I mentioned earlier, there is an open congressional seats kind of thing. Doesn't come. Come on us uh, too often, and uh, as you mentioned, the fourth congressional district in Long Island, my home district.
1: You going to run, Michael? Uh,
0: I am not announcing anything here this second. Uh, That's not very Shermanesque. Exactly, and uh, but I just want to you know take a look at the candidates I see you know kind of out there, and uh, it was mentioned earlier that Senator Jack Martins, who's certainly a favorite of mine, a uh, big fan of his, uh, is not may not be interested in running, although you know I think he would be formidable. Uh, they are looking also on the Republican side that fran becker might be interested in running again uh he's run the last two times against mccarthy uh, i don't think he would be a strong candidate i like fran a lot i think he's wonderful but uh, really good guy but he has not uh, he certainly has not shown the political chops to really take it all the way uh it's kate, gonna it's
1: gonna be a self funder
0: i i was just gonna say that i was just gonna say uh, kate murray uh is the the town of hempstead Supervisor, uh, I think she certainly has uh, the political name recognition, but does she want to give that up in order to go ahead and uh, to go ahead and run for Congress and then Tony Santino, the senior councilman, has also been mentioned on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, Kathleen Rice, I want to get to that, Ryan, do you think she would run? Kathleen Rice give up the district attorney's job a countywide job in order to run for congress?
1: Um, I think that she might.
0: You think that she might? Okay, very interesting. There are some, definitely some dark horse candidates out there, and uh, but I do I did hear one name earlier today, Phil Rosen, who is a re- leader Ooh. in the Republican Jewish Coalition, uh, a potentially self-funder, has looked uh, has said that he's going to put some big money together to go ahead and explore this race. So we shall see. Could As be a progressive
1: Democrat, I love Phil Rosen and, for personal reasons, but it, I love him.
0: And it certainly could be interesting from a Jewish point of view to have that type of dynamic in that race so we shall see and uh, there is going to be so much coming up in 2014 for us to discuss thank you very much for joining us spin class sponsored by beckerman ryan carbon thanks for guest hosting on this very exciting very very exciting political day